Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. The word of the Lord. Want to be banging that. It's my privilege to be with you here this morning and to, and to be able to share God's word with you. As Eric said, uh, my wife Lois and I, we part of our ministry now, or bulk of our ministry really, is uh, coaching and being involved in mentoring other uh, younger pastoral couples. And we have about 20 couples that we work with right now in one, one shape or another. And, uh, and Eric and Amelia, we, we, we've known them for, like Eric said, going all the way back to their time and in downtown San Diego and that area. And so it's a privilege to be here. I think I was here about a year ago, see a lot of new faces, and that's always wonderful to see as well. One of the things that uh, I, I encounter almost every week is I have my opportunity to talk with the pastors that I work with. It's just the uh, polarization of culture that they experience in the places where they find themselves. We have about seven couples that we work with here in Southern California. The other 13 are are spread out really all over the country, all the way back to Boston, Detroit, uh, Mobile, Alabama, and everywhere in between. And, and one of the fascinating things is that everyone is in such a different culture, but they find themselves in situations where the culture is becoming increasingly polarized. And that's certainly something that, that each one of you has experienced, I'm sure, just in the, in the feeds you get on, on your internet, as you pull up news, as you read things, we find that more and more uh, the, the country is getting into subsections that don't talk to each other real well. And we find ourselves, and as the church, as those who are called out by Christ, trying to figure out where we fit into this whole mix. I think sometimes we find ourselves wanting to be on the defensive because we're under attack. Other times we, we think, well, we need to be offensive here. We need to we need to move forward. We need to have a different approach to things uh, and be a little more militant in what we believe. And we tend to vacillate between those two things and trying to find really ultimately uh, the best way to engage in the world. Uh, the military has this expression that they call rules of engagement. I know there's a TV show by that name, and I've never watched that show, so I don't know what it means but, or what it's about. But rules of engagement in a military sense always shift, don't they? Rules of engagement, you don't find them like, like the Ten Commandments in a book somewhere and they're involatile like that. It's something that switches given uh, the situation that the military might find itself in. And so the rules of engagement concern what objectives they have going into a certain battle, uh, whether they're going to shoot before they're shot at, you know, those sorts of things. And as we think about being engaged in the world, I think 
it's helpful for us to come up with some rules for engagement in that. And that's really what I want to talk to you about this morning. But notice in the passage that was just read, Paul talks there about winning. Uh, He talks about wanting to win some. And as we read that, if we read it with our cultural eyes, we might think that Paul is talking about some kind of battle here. He's really not talking about a battle in the sense of a culture war. Paul is talking, when he uses the expression that he wants to win people to Christ, he's not even talking about winning debates or winning arguments. He's talking about giving hope to people. He's talking about the opportunity we have um, to shed light on, on people's experience and point them to Jesus Christ. And Paul says, in, in fact, in this passage, what he says is that he's basically willing to lose in almost every other area of his life in order to help people win in that sense, to win people to that hope that they might have in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what I would like to do is just step back from this passage a little bit and talk about some things that Paul had on his heart as he sought to engage the world, to engage the culture that he was in. And I think the very first thing that we find in this passage is Paul says he would want us to clarify our purpose Uh, to clarify your purpose. Toward the end of that passage, uh, Paul says that uh, he does all things, I do it all, the very last verse, for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. And I think what Paul is getting in touch with here is the fact that we were built, we were created for relationship. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, which we use in our circles, we Uh, The very first question of that is a very famous question. What is the chief end of man? And it says to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so right away, it's bringing us uh, to the point where we understand that our chief purpose is relational. It's to have a relationship with God where we can glorify him and enjoy him forever. When Jesus was confronted by people that really wanted to trip him up, uh, they asked him, what's the greatest (coughs) commandment? And uh, he said, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. But he said the second one is, is like unto it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus, when he boiled down the whole law, he boiled it down to relationship, didn't he? He says the greatest commandment is a vertical relationship, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. But then very closely following that, tied directly into it, is the horizontal relationship of loving your neighbor as you love yourself. God built us to be fulfilled as we have that relationship with God and as we serve other people. And what Paul is telling us in this passage is that he really subjected everything else in his life to those purposes. Now, when you read a passage like this, I don't know if you're like me, uh, you read a passage like this and it's easy for us to say, well, that's great for Paul. Paul was this first century apostle who spread the news of Jesus Christ and was one of the first missionaries of the church. And uh, we we can look at a passage like this and say, those are good good rules, those are good things to live by for people in professional ministry. But Paul would say, this isn't just uh, full-time ministry that I'm talking about here. This is how we all ought to live. Paul himself made tents in order to provide for his physical needs, but subjected everything else, including that, to this goal of winning others to Christ, giving to others the hope 
that he had. That was his purpose, no matter where he found himself. I think the second thing that we see from this passage that Paul wants us uh, to understand is uh, our culture. He wants us to understand our culture and, and to be involved in, in figuring out the kinds of people that we rub shoulders with, that we come in contact with. And in this particular passage, Paul mentions three different groups. He talks about the Jews. He says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. He, he talks about those uh, without the law. He says, I came, became like those without the law. And he talks about the weak. Now, I don't think that those three categories, the Jews, those without the law, and the weak, encompass all the people that Paul ever found himself uh, connected to. But he's speaking in this passage about three different groups that have characteristics, each of which, each group, which needed a little different approach. And he's saying, as I engage other people with the hope of Jesus Christ, I want to engage them in a way that they can understand, that they can relate to. And so to the Jew, I'm going to become like a Jew. To those without the law, like ones without the law. To the weak, I'm going to subject and submit all the things that I'm free to do on my own. I'm going to limit my freedom in order to be able to minister more effectively uh, to those weak people. One of the most interesting passages in the book of Acts uh, for me is when I look at Paul in Acts chapter 17 where he uh, takes a journey to Greece. He goes to Athens and there uh, he finds himself in the marketplace in Athens. The marketplace in Athens is kind of, uh, I heard one person describe it recently as the place where Wall Street intersects with Harvard. You know, it wasn't just a place of commerce. It was also a place of ideas. And, and that's what we find in this passage in Acts 17, that, that Paul is eventually going to find his way up to the Areopagus where he has this conversation with the Greek philosophers of his day. But along the way in, in, in that passage, in verse 23, I think it is, he talks about how he spent time looking at the idols of the city. And I think in that particular context, he would have been able to go to a certain place in the marketplace and actually look at idols with inscriptions on them, idols made of wood and stone, whatever else they might have been made of. And, and the inscriptions would have said the significance of each one of these idols. And what Paul did is he, is he looked and researched those idols, as it were, for whatever period of time he spent doing that, and then he went to engage in conversation with the people. And right away what he's doing is trying to find significant points of contact between their idols and the gospel. He wants the way that has the most integrity but will speak with most clarity to these people. And, and that's what follows in the rest of Acts chapter 17. It's a wonderful expression. And so I think that what we take away from that is the fact that we need to understand our cultural idols as well. Now, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, we can't just go to a park and, and find a section of the park set aside with idols on it uh, that tell us what our people worship. Uh, it's not that easy for us. It takes a little more work on our part to understand what the idols are of our culture. But if we take that time, we will find those points of contact. We will find ways in which people are committed to certain values and committed to certain goals in their lives that, that really direct how they live. And that's, in essence, what Paul is trying to do in Acts 17. And that's what he's calling on us to do to understand the culture so that to the Jew we can be a Jew, to the, those without the law 
like those without the law. So we understand where they're coming from. So we understand uh, their mindset. And once we understand that, we can, we, can, we can focus on the way that might have the most direct impact on them as we bring the gospel to them. Uh, what do we need to know about our culture? What are the things that would be important? I think the first thing that we need to know is that uh, we live in a mission field. Uh, there was a man by the name of Leslie Newbigin who lived in uh, Great Britain uh, for most of the 20th century. He was born at the beginning of it. He died at the end of it. And in the middle part of that, he was sent out as a missionary to India where he spent about 40 years on the mission field. And at the age of 65, he came back to Great Britain. And it would have been around 1970. He came back and he uh, realized something that was very, very interesting to him. When he came back to Great Britain, what he came back to was not the same country that he had left. He left, he, he left something that was very Christian and went into something that was, or came back to something that was very foreign to him. And he said, what we need to do is realize that the place that we thought was evangelized at one point uh, is now our mission field. We need to understand our culture. One of the things that I share with the guys that I, I talk to is the importance of understanding our culture. You see this map up on the, on the screen right there. It comes from a book entitled American Nations by a man named Colin Woodard. And uh, this book is a fascinating book because it talks about the fact, the basic thesis of this book is that America is not a country of 50 states. It's a country of 11 nations. And he really talks about how these different nations uh, are, have more affinity with one another, sometimes than even states. One of the ways you see this is uh, if you're from Southern California, I grew up in Long Beach, and, and when I would go to other parts of the country, I would tell people I was from California. And often I would get someone to say, say well, yeah, I, I spent a couple weeks in San Francisco once, you know, and I'm like, no, that's not, well, that's not my life, you know, that's not where I, I'm from. And so, you know, as SoCalians, Southern Californians, we, we talk about SoCal, we talk about Northern California, but that really doesn't do the state justice either, does it? I mean, where do you put Fresno? Where do you put Modesto, you know? Are they Southern? Are they Northern? And, and in Colin Woodard's uh, evaluation of American nations, California belongs to three of them. Three of the 11 are, are, are in our state. El Norte is, is kind of Southern California all along the border, uh, down, uh, down all the way really into Texas and up into uh, the Rio Grande through New Mexico and Colorado. But then he has uh, the, the bulk of the western eastern side of California is in what he calls the far west, which shares affinity with what we call these days, you know, the flyover states uh, in, in our culture. But then we also, he also has what he calls um, the left coast. And he says that really begins somewhere, you know, mid-state and goes up and, and has far more affinity with Oregon and Washington. And we say, well, that makes a lot of sense. One of the guys I coach was born in San Francisco. Um, he grew up in Texas. He went to college in Georgia and then found himself in ministry in the Cambridge area of Boston and finally got a call to a church in the hills of Texas. And, I, and when he told me this story, I said, John, you are a cultural mess. How can you sort out all that stuff in your life? Uh, and, and he was really having a struggle trying to understand uh, and, and relate his background to the people that he was ministering to. I said, John, you need to read this book. You need to understand it. We need to talk it through. We need to understand our culture so that we can better know where we're coming from 
and where the people that we're ministering to, where they're coming from as well. And when we understand our culture, once we, we get to that point, then we have some options. You know, we can, we can work to impose our culture. Uh, I call that kind of the church militant. Uh, we can work also to, at some points, people will say, our main job is to um, rail against the culture. Uh, some people say, well, you, you know, the main job of the church is just to remain true in the midst of a culture that, that is declining. And I call that kind of the subcultural approach. We just become a subculture of our culture instead of engaging the culture. So whether we're talking about being the church militant or the church triumphant or the church resilient, if you want to call it that way, I think there's a sense in which all those things have a place and they have a value. But what Paul is saying here in this passage in 1 Corinthians 9 is really his heartbeat where he says, I want more than anything else to be engaged. I want the church, I want myself to be engaged with these people. I, I want to uh, come up with strategies that will ultimately be countercultural, not subcultural, but countercultural, that will make people think um, because we're bringing light into darkness. And being countercultural means that as a church we become somewhat unpredictable. And I think that's a wonderful place for us as a church to be, to be unpredictable. That people shouldn't be able to hear just because we're a Christian that we're lining up in all these 20 different ways. But there's some unpredictability there as well. One of the things that I uh, started doing about 20 years ago and, and really enjoyed doing was playing baseball again. I played through college, and after college, I, I did the um, uh, proverbial church softball stuff for a couple years. And then finally, I started coaching my own boys in Little League and, and uh, ran into some guys who were playing hardball again as adults, and they said, you ought to come out and play. And I said, well, I really don't have the time or the bandwidth to do that, but maybe when I finish coaching my own kids, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And so as I came to the end of the time when my kids were through playing Little League, I started playing again. And it was just a lot of fun uh, playing. I was in an over-40 league at the time, and uh, we'd, we'd play once a week and just had a, had a great group of guys I played with and, and enjoyed it immensely. Um, one of the things that happens, though, that's very interesting. When you get a bunch of guys together, whether they're 40, 50, or 60, and you put them in uniforms, and you put them out on a baseball field and in a dugout, this, this odd thing happens where they revert back to, like, teenage behavior. Now, you women, I know you can't relate to that. Uh, you can't imagine that, that happening, but it actually does happen. That, that guys will, uh, you know, their language just becomes real coarse, they, the jokes they tell become, you know, off-color, and, and this is what goes on. And, and after a while, uh, you kind of settle into that, and, and the other guys on the team, they knew what I did, and so they would keep it relatively clean around me, and, and uh, they'd laugh uh, and, and look at me to see if I was laughing, that kind of thing. But what would happen invariably is along the way, we'd pick up a new player. And that new player, in order to fit in, you know, would, would speak off-color and tell bad jokes and this, that, and the other. And the other guys on the team would look at me and see how I was processing all of this with the new guy. And I'd just kind of, you know, I'd, I'd kind of smile and shake my head, and they'd smile and shake their heads because they knew what I knew, that pretty soon something was going to happen that was, that was going to be uh, really interesting. And sure enough, after two or three weeks, I'd find myself, after a game, 
sitting across the table eating pizza with a guy, with one of these new guys that, you know, it's like five F-bombs later and ten raunchy stories later. Now I'm sitting there eating pizza with him, and he turns to me and he says, so, Doug, what do you do for a living, you know? <laughs> and I would say, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. And, and the look that he would give me at that point, it was like frozen deer in the headlights. And then he would laugh. He'd go, oh, you got me, you know. I, I can't believe you pulling my leg like that. I go, no, 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 it's real. I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for, you know, 20 years or whatever. And at that point, the blood would just kind of drain out of his face. And I would always say this at that point. I'd say, excuse me, but I got to go to the bathroom. And I didn't have to go to the bathroom, but I just needed him to give him time to kind of swallow the pizza and, and to get his wits about him. And I'd come back two or three minutes later and, and invariably what would happen then is just a whole string of apologies. Like, oh, I never knew. I, I'm so sorry. And, and I'd say, you know, you don't, have to, you don't have to be that way. I'm a big boy. I didn't, I didn't come here to be the thought police. I came here because I enjoy playing baseball, and, and, and that's fine. And, you know, you kind of see him relax a little bit. But it, it just had created all kinds of interesting opportunities to be unpredictable in that kind of environment. And that unpredictability led to a lot of interesting and and fascinating opportunities that I had. Um, over the years, I ended up performing marriage ceremonies for some of my teammates, which was really cool. If I, if I performed their marriage ceremony, invariably in six months, I would be doing marriage counseling with these guys, you know, as they were trying to figure out what they just did. Um, I ended up marrying some of their children down, down the road. I actually did a funeral for one of the fellows that I, I played with. I caught him on a Saturday, he had a heart attack on Monday. They had a service the next, the next weekend. And um, that week on Tuesday, I think his wife called, and I was good friends with his wife. And she said, Doug, uh, would you be willing to uh, lead the ceremony for Carrie's funeral on Saturday? And I, and I said, absolutely. And she goes, I just have one request um, that was really Carrie's wish and my wish too, that there be nothing in the ceremony that would be religious. And I, and I said, I'll be glad to do that. In fact, I, I felt in one sense honored that she would trust me with that. They were, they were atheists. Um, we had talked about that. And, and in essence, they were saying, this is how we want to go out. Um, we don't want to do a flip here. We don't want to switch it at the end. And, I, and I, felt, I felt honored that she would trust me with that. And I also reflected on the fact that I, I know guys in ministry that would have said at that point, you know, if you don't let me speak what I want to speak, I want nothing to do with this. But I felt it was important to become all things to all people, that in the end I might win some. This funeral was one of the, one of the most fascinating funerals I ever did. We had it actually at the baseball field where we played. It was an open casket, but it was full casket. And Carrie was there at home plate. And people shared, you know, different stories about Carrie. And kind of the ultimate uh, end of the ceremony was uh, they, they put on John Fogarty, put me in coach, I'm ready to play, over the loudspeaker. And we stationed guys at each of the th three bases and home plate. And they carried the casket around the bases. And they, we even had some umpires at the end who, when they brought it back and put it on home plate, they gave the safe sign like this. You know, and I'm off over 
to the side just kind of like this, you know, hoping that no one's capturing this on video and that my presbytery is not going to see what I'm in, involved with in this funeral of, of a baseball guy with a casket being carried around. But, you know, it was a way to reach out to people that would have no other contact with Christians. And the greatest joy I had in that whole experience was leading uh, a man who was a friend of mine at the time to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, become all things, Paul says, to all people, not in order to win all, but to win some. To win some. And to be able to have a, uh, an impact like that on people around us. We need to understand our culture. I think the third thing that Paul is saying here in this passage as we step back from it is that we need, thirdly, to be able to set aside our preferences. Uh, you know, he says, I, I'm free, but yet I'm going to subject my freedom uh, to those who are weak. I don't have to become like a Jew, but I will. I don't have to, you know, celebrate all the Jewish feasts, but I will if that will give me an entree uh, to these people that don't know the story about Jesus Christ. I'm willing to subject myself to Jew or Gentile or whoever it might be in order to have that opportunity. One of the ways that we express this is we use the word incarnational. Uh, that's, that's kind of a theological word that we use to talk about how it's, it's a way that we can enter into a culture and be, become a part of that culture for the sake of communicating more effectively to that culture. We become incarnational. One of my favorite uh, swing and miss incarnational stories is of a friend that uh, a friend of ours who did missionary work for years in, in Tijuana. Steve Williams knows uh, this friend very well as, well as some other people who are here today. And uh, David, when he first went to Tijuana, um, he, he got all of the information, studied the culture and so forth. He knew Spanish very well. He had a wife, Jane, and, and a son, Timothy, at the time. And one of the things that Dave wanted to do was he wanted to figure out how he could best become incarnational in Tijuana. Now, when, when you, we go to Tijuana from Southern California, what is the last thing usually that people tell you before you take off on a trip to Tijuana? They say, don't drink the water. Okay, don't drink the water. Well, David says to himself, I'm going to learn to drink the water because I want to be incarnational. I want to show these people that, that I'm, I'm willing, you know, that's just a honky thing. That's just a white deal. That I'm going to go down there and I'm going to, I'm going to drink their water. So he didn't tell Jane he had to do it. He didn't feed the water. Uh, you know, give the water to his little boy, but he says, I'm going to drink the water. Well, in, in a couple of weeks, Dave was deathly sick. I mean, he was puking. He was white as a sheet, just couldn't keep anything down, just miserable. And, uh, but, it, but he was sticking to it because he says, I, I just got to keep at this, and my body will get used to it, and, and I'll, I'll really be doing this right. He finally had a conversation with the next-door neighbor who was very concerned for David, too, because he, he saw him kind of going downhill and he said to David, tell me what's going on. And David described all the symptoms he was having. And as he was describing it, the guy got more and more concerned, look on his face. And finally, he interrupted him. He says, David, are you drinking the water? And David says, well, well yeah. And he goes, David, we don't drink the water. <laughs> and, so, and so it's what I call a swing and miss uh, story. David was trying hard to be incarnational. He just didn't understand that, you know, the way he was going about doing it really wasn't going to be effective. We don't even drink the water. 
And so after that, he started getting the water that, that they received and had a cistern that he, that he filled up regularly with, with clean water. Um, but the, the motive always impressed me that David was willing uh, to go down that road to seek to sacrifice whatever was necessary in order to relate more carefully and more closely uh, to those people. He's willing to be inconvenienced to make that kind of, of sacrifice. I think the final thing that we see in this passage that Paul talks about is after we've clarified our purpose and understood our culture, we set aside our preferences. I think at that point, then what we do is we pray for opportunities. We pray for opportunities to share our faith and to share our Savior. It it goes really back to the whole purpose. Paul says, I want to do all of this so I can share in the blessings of the gospel. And, And I think a lot of times we just don't know where to start with people in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in the in the different subcultures that we find ourselves in, in those communities. We don't know where to start. But here's where you can always start, friends. It's where Paul encouraged people to start. And Paul asked people to help him start there. He says, pray for me that I might have open doors of opportunities. Just simply pray that God would give you open doors to relate to people the hope that you have in you, to give to them the light that God has given to you. Cultivate friendships and conversations so that the goal of everyone is to have the next conversation and to be able to go further in that conversation with with Jesus Christ. I want to conclude this morning by telling you the story of a friend of mine who I believe more than anyone else um, lived with these kind of rules of engagement. He was a fellow that I went to college with, and uh, this is actually a picture of graduation day at college. That's me on the left. Uh, give me a little slack. This was back in the 70s. Um, but this uh, Mike Cromerty, the fellow I want to talk about, is standing next to me. And uh, next to him is the speaker, the commencement speaker that day. Uh, this was in 1976 and at Covenant College. And uh, the speaker was a man by the name of William Middendorf. And he was the secretary of the Navy at the time. And he came, he uh, was also a member of a PCA church, uh, one of our denominational churches. And, and so he came to the, the ceremony, gave this speech, and it was one of those typical kinds of graduation speeches, nothing fantastic or anything. But he was impressing upon us the whole idea that we need to, uh, you know, not limit ourselves. We need to shoot for the stars, that kind of thing. And he says, even in a class this size and this place, there might be a someone in in this group here that will one day be a United States senator. There might be another one who would be a Supreme Court justice. He says, maybe even one of you might become president of the United States. Well, Mike, after the ceremony, he he came up and grabbed me and the fellow on the right, my friend Dwayne, and he says, come on over here. We need to get a picture with Middendorf. And he pulled us over, and then he went and he grabbed Middendorf, and he pulled him in, and he says, we need you to come over here and take a picture with us because we're the three guys you were talking about in your address a little bit earlier. You know, so that's the kind of guy Mike was. And you can see the, you know, the grin on his face there. We all knew at that point in his life that Mike would, would always know people that were going to be influential. Mike might not ever become famous himself, but he was going to know all the famous people. He was going to be a connector of people. And, and right away after... He graduated from Covenant. He connected up with Charles Colson when Colson was just coming out of prison. If you know the story of Charles Colson, he was involved in the Watergate, one of the very first ones to serve prison time. And it was in while he was in prison, really, that 
that the Lord laid on his heart a burden to minister to prisoners, and he started prison fellowship. Mike was the, uh, his right-hand person for, for quite a while and really uh, served the purpose of introducing Chuck Colson to Christian thinkers that shaped the way that Colson would look at the gospel, the way that he would look at, at the cultural um, uh, challenge of Christianity, and really all of the books that Colson ended up writing before he died. Uh, could be traced back to those early conversations he had with people that Mike had put him in contact with. Mike went on to serve as the vice president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and he was also appointed for a six-year term uh, to George W. Bush's Commission on International Religious Freedom. Uh, but more than anyone else that I know, Mike was one who became all things to all people in order to win some. There's a story that Mike tells about a time back in the 1990s when the Southern Baptists were debating the role of women in, in society and in the church and all that sort of thing. And he had reporters that he was friends with. And the reporters, uh, one day, came, one reporter came to him and said, can you explain this to me? Uh, can you explain what they're talking about? Because it was so foreign uh, to the world of the reporter of the dialogue that was going on within the Southern Baptist Church. And Mike said to the reporter, well, yeah, let's sit down and talk about it. They went out to lunch, and Mike began to talk about where the Southern Baptists were kind of coming from. And he said, you know, in Ephesians 5, uh, Paul says this, and he, he quoted something out of Ephesians 5. And the writer stopped him right there, and he says, wait, wait just a minute. And he's taking copious notes. He says, wait a minute who wrote this book of Ephesians, who published it, and where can I get a hold of it? And when Mike heard that, he told Fred Barnes later on, he says, I realized, Fred, that at that moment, I had to start at the beginning. I had to start at the beginning. And it would have been an opportunity for Mike to really slap down this reporter and say, you know, this is what we Christians have to deal with all the time, that you don't even know that this is a book in the Bible. You think I'm talking about something completely different. But instead of slapping the man down, what Mike really did was he offered him a hand up. And he says, I, want, I really want to meet you where you are and help you understand where we are and so that there would be a meeting of the minds. And so what Mike did in 1999, he started a, a regular gathering that, that happened twice a year called the Faith Angle Forum, where he would bring together people, uh, leading journalists, people like David Brooks, um, people like Kathleen Turner, people who wrote editorials for the New York Times and the Washington Post and all sorts of leading newspaper, uh, newspapers in the, in the country. He would bring them all together, and then he would bring a religious leader in uh, to have roundtable discussions with them. And he did this for several years, twice a year, uh, bringing in people. Uh, Rick Warren came in one time to talk to those guys. Uh, Tim Keller came recently to the Faith Angle Forum. Uh, he had other leading uh, it wasn't just evangelical Christians. He would have Catholics come. He would have Jews come. He would have Muslims come even and talk to these journalists so that they would understand more of the things that these people were committed to so that they could speak and write intelligently about them. And Mike fought real hard in this context for civility among the people because it was so easy for those conversations. There'd be you know, 20, 25 people in the room, and it would be so easy for those conversations to devolve into arguments and debates. And Mike would always cut it off 
and he would, he would, he would say, no, we're not going to go there. We want to we work toward more and more understanding of what's going on here. And gradually over time, what he could see, he could trace the fact that the journalists that participated in the Faith, Faith Angle Forum began to represent religious leaders more accurately and treat them more fairly. And on the same token, the religious leaders gained an appreciation for the challenges and, and the perspectives of the, of the journalists and where they were coming from. And they would speak of them with more respect. <clears throat> well, 18 months ago, Mike was uh, diagnosed with a form of, of stomach cancer. And they did a lot of treatment over the course of the next year. Thought at one point that um, it was in remission and that he would be okay, but it returned earlier this year in a vengeance. And by the summer, he and his wife, Jenny, got the um, visit with the doctor where the doctor basically said, we've done all that we can do. And at that point, uh, you know, those of us who knew Mike were, were encouraging him, praying for him. Uh, others were involved in praying for him too. And as they expressed the, the courage that Mike has as he faced what was ahead of him, it was just very encouraging for us to read it from a distance. Russell Moore, who, was, who is a Southern Baptist and works in Policy Center in Washington, D.C. for the Southern Baptist, was a friend of, of Mike's. And he visited Mike at one point. And uh, at the end of it, Mike said, Russell, would you please pray for me? And Russell said, yes, I'll, I'll pray for you, Mike. And, and Russell turned to leave. And, um, and Mike called out and he said, Russell, pray for healing. <laughs> and Russell says, okay, Mike, I'll, I'll, I'll pray for healing. And he turned and he, and he walked away. And Mike called out even louder. He says, Russell, he says, don't pray one of those theologically careful Calvinistic prayers. Pray like a Pentecostal, Russell. Pray for healing. And Russell says, okay, I'll pray for healing. Uh, but in God's providence, that wasn't the way the prayer was answered. And a little less than two months ago, uh, Mike passed away at the end of August. And the tributes that at that point began to pour in for Mike were, were just incredible. For a guy that really no one knew, but he knew everyone else. He had become all things to all people in order to win some. There was, there was one story that was told about um, Time Magazine doing a story on the 20 most influential men and women in, in Christianity. And one of those was asked, one of those 20 was asked by someone else, from your perspective, is there anyone that was left off this list? And he said, well, Mike Cromartie's not on that list. And the guy says, well, who's Mike Cromarty? And he says, well, Mike Cromarty is the one who told Time Magazine who those 20 people were. That was his kind of ministry. The New York Times uh, had an editorial or a remembrance of Mike that was, uh, said that Mike shepherded a generation of journalists toward a more informed coverage of religion's evolving junction with politics and public policy. Christianity Today called him the church's ambassador to Washington. Kathleen Parker had a, just a very endearing editorial that she wrote in the Washington Post that was entitled to Brother Cromarty with Love. And there was an, an equally touching review in the National Review uh, that, that was a very great tribute to Mike. I could go on and on about the things that I read about Mike, none of which surprised me, but all of which made me feel very grateful to have known this man 
and to have had him a part of my life, to have him be an example to me of what it means to be all things to all people in order to win some. But I, I think one way that his life was summed up was by someone saying that Mike lived his life with a conviction that lighting a candle was better than cursing the darkness. Lighting a candle was better than cursing the darkness. And so Mike spent his life lighting candles for other people. You know, you may hear that story. You may read what Paul says here in, in 1 Corinthians 9, and it may uh, cause you, I know in some of my days, it causes me to be a little bit discouraged because I know that that's not me. That's, that's not the impact my life has had. That's not my calling. Um, it's so far out there ahead of where most people are. Sometimes it can be discouraging. Mike would be embarrassed for anyone to be discouraged over his life. Mike was simply doing what God had called him to do. And Mike would be the first one to say that he didn't even do it well. But our hope is not in doing what Mike did. Our hope is not doing what Paul did. Our hope is in the fact that we have a Savior who did what Paul is talking about here, who, who was real clear about his purpose when he came to earth and said, I've not come to do my own will, but I've come to do the will of my Father. And he not only understood the culture, but he entered into the culture. He took on flesh, and he dwelt among us, and he suffered like we suffer. He was tempted as we're tempted. Uh, He not only set this wonderful example, but then he went to the cross at the end of that life, that perfect life, to die a death that would be a substitute, that would take the penalty for our sin, all the ways that we've fallen short of doing these things that God has called us to do. Jesus not only entered into the culture, he drank the water. He drank the water of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to drink it. And when Jesus does that, now he holds out to us the hope that we as his ambassadors can be those who are not creating light, but simply lighting the candle that he's passed to us, that we're the light of the world because we have a hope in us that's given to us by Christ that we know other people need as well. And so because of that, we become all things to all people in order to win some. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that the job for each one of us is not the same. We thank you that our callings are unique and that you give to us the opportunity to live those callings out in ways that will connect with different sorts of people. But I pray that as we think of these words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, Jesus says, we think of what you did in your sacrifice, uh, that we would embrace that by faith, but then, Lord, we would also see that our goal now is to share that good news with others. May we do it in word. May we do it in deed. May we do it in a way that brings honor and glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.